My name is Karen Kennerly. I'm the director of Penn American Center. On behalf of Artan Gregorian, who's the president of the New York Public Library, and Norman Mailer, the president of Penn, we welcome you to an evening of readings from literature of exile or imprisonment. This is the first collaborative event between Penn and the library, and one which yokes the central purpose of both, the perpetuation and preservation of literature. For the public library, our reading is the final event in a three-long series of readings and discussions held concurrently with the exhibition 500 Years of Censorship, itself a stunning declaration of the necessity of knowing how censorship has invaded literary culture if we are to continue to press it back in our own lives and times. For Penn, tonight's reading is a prelude to the annual International Penn Writers in Prison Day, the date of which is October 19th. This Writers in Prison Day brings attention to those writers who are in prison for their work in countries as various as Pakistan, Uruguay, Turkey, Soviet Union, China, and Turkey. I mean, China, I'm sorry, in China, to name only a very few. And more important, the day hopes to dignify the freedom of their spirits and the integrity of their work. On October 19th, Penn centers in England, Sweden, France, Japan, again, just to name a few, will honor writers in prison in public halls, on radio shows, and through articles in the press. Tonight we have elected to read from classical literature to place our colleagues who are in jail in a context which is, after all, theirs. We've also chosen to read about exile as well, that state opposite to imprisonment, or wide, windy spaces forever undefined by domestic landmarks of the psyche, the memorial accumulation of city streets, familial faces of language. In both states, imprisonment and exile, the writer can depend only upon, to loosely borrow an image from Joseph Brodsky, those multicolored Chinese ribbons drawn forth magically from oneself. You have the program before you uh, and the order in which our, our readers will appear. Uh, one very important correction, uh, Richard Howard is not the author of a part of speech, but the author of Lining Up. Um, I have, finally, I would like to thank David Cronin um, at New York Public Library for everything he has done to make this evening possible as well as all the ones that came before it. Thank you. Writers of great works do not require that we know much about them, and we do not. Even when their lives are sensational, victimized or victimizing. Villon, Cervantes, Verlaine suffered imprisonment, Dante, exile, without their creative powers being impaired. Perhaps they were even intensified. But Oscar Wilde, who produced one masterpiece and an important articulation of critical attitudes, Oscar Wilde would have liked nothing better than that we should know everything about him. Compared to Oscar, his friend Gide was as secretive as Lord Tennyson and Whitman as reticent as Henry James. The consequence of prison, not the fact of it, was crippling for Wilde, 
who needed the double life. He needed society, and when drawing rooms withdrew their invitations, Oscar Wilde lost the will to write. As he used to tell people, when I was a boy, my two favorite characters were Lucien de Rubempré and Julien Sorel. Lucien hanged himself, Julien died on the scaffold, and I died in prison. Not quite. Upon release, Oscar Wilde described what English prisons were like at the time in two long letters to the Daily Chronicle, which produced today tears and indignation. And it is comforting to learn that some of the reforms he proposed were eventually adopted. I'm going to read you a brief passage from De Profundis, the letter from Reading Jail, which Oscar Wilde wrote to Lord Alfred Douglas. Lord Alfred, the man that Mr. Auden has called a vicious, gold-digging, snobbish, anti-Semitic, untalented little horror of whom no good word can be said. <laughs> the letter was written in 1897, when Oscar Wilde was 43, and when Lord Douglas was 28. Lord Alfred Douglas was 28. Wilde had been imprisoned at hard labor for two years, and upon his imminent release was to live only three more. The solemnities of the text, most of which I have overlooked in my brief excerpt, may find an antidote in letters to Wilde's faithful friend uh, from exile in Italy and France, Wilde's friend Robert Ross, whereas you were in France, whereas you will recall, Oscar attributed his death in Paris to the hotel wallpaper. One of us, he told Robbie, had to go. My dear Bosey, our ill-fated friendship has ended in ruin and public infamy for me. Yet the memory of our ancient affection is often with me. Do you still say I attribute unworthy motives to you? You had no motives. You had appetites, merely. A motive is an intellectual aim or that you were very young when our friendship began. Your defect was not that you knew so little about life, but that you knew so much. You wore one out. It was the case of that tyranny of the weak over the strong, which is the only tyranny that lasts. In less than three years, you had entirely ruined me from every point of view. For my own sake, there was nothing left for me to do but love you. Yet such is the irony of things that, that your father will live to be the hero of a Sunday school tract, that you will rank with the infant Samuel, and that my place will be between Gilles de Ray and the Marquis de Sade. I dare say it is best so. Nor have I any doubt that the leper of medievalism and the author of Justine will prove better company than Tom Brown at Eton. Yet I must say to myself that neither you nor your father, multiplied a thousand times over, could possibly have ruined a man like me. That I ruined myself. And that nobody, great or small, can be ruined except by his own hand. I was a man who stood in symbolic relation to the art and culture of my age. Few men hold such a position in their own lifetime and have it so acknowledged, it is usually discerned, if discerned at all, by the 
historian or the critic long after both the man and his age have passed away. With me, as with Byron, it was different. I felt it myself and I made others feel it. Remember also that I have yet to know you. Perhaps we have yet to know each other. Do not be afraid of the past. If people tell you it is irrevocable, do not believe them. The past is what we choose to make it, like anything else. Things are according to the mode in which we look at them. There is nothing wrong in what one does. There is only something wrong in what one becomes. What seemed to the world and to the, myself, my future, I lost irretrievably when I let myself be taunted into taking the action against your father. I dare say I had lost it long before that. What lies before me is my past. I have got to make myself look on that with different eyes to make the world look on that with different eyes. This I cannot do by ignoring it or slighting it or praising it or denying it. It is only to be done by fully accepting it as an inevitable part of the evolution of my life and character how far I am from that true temper of soul. This letter will show you quite clearly. But do not forget what a terrible school I am, in what a terrible school I am sitting to my task. And incomplete, imperfect as I am, yet from me you may have still much to gain. Your affectionate friend. Now with this letter was written another letter Dear Robbie, I send you in a roll separate from this my letter to Alfred Douglas. I want you to have it copied for me. Of course, it is too long for any amanuensis to attempt. And your own handwriting especially seems designed to remind me that this task is not to be yours. Do write clearly. Otherwise, it looks as if you had nothing to conceal. As for copying, I think that the only thing to do is to, be, is to be thoroughly modern and have it typewritten. I assure you that the typewriting machine, when played with expression, is not more annoying than the piano when played by a sister or a near relative. <laughs> Indeed, many among those most devoted to domesticity prefer it. Of the many things for which I have to thank the governor, there is none for which I am more grateful than for his permission to write to Alfred Douglas and at as great length as I desired. For nearly two years, I had within me a growing burden of bitterness, much of which I have now got rid of. On the other side of the prison wall, there are some poor black soot-smirched trees that are just breaking into buds of an almost shrill green. I know quite well what they are going through. They are finding expression. I have never had a chance to thank you for the books. They were most welcome. Meredith's novel charmed me 
He is quite right in his assertion of sanity as the essential in romance. Still, up to the present, only the abnormal have found expression in life and in literature. Stevenson's letters are most disappointing. I see in them traces of a terrible strain to lead a natural life. To chop wood with any advantage to oneself or profit to others, one should not be able to describe the process. The point of fact, in point of fact, the, the natural life is the unconscious life. Stevenson merely extends the sphere of the artificial by taking to chopping. The whole dreary book has given me a lesson. If I spend my future life reading Baudelaire in a cafe, I shall be leading a more natural life than if I were to take to planting cacao in mud swamps. At the time of my leaving this place, as the time of my leaving this place approaches, I have a horror of going out into the world without a single book of my own. I wonder, would there be any of my friends who would give me a few books? You know the sort I want. Flaubert, Baudelaire, Keats, Coleridge, Dante, and all Dante literature, Goethe and Ditto, and so on. Oh yes, dear Robbie, please find out for me the names of the children who are in here for snaring rabbits and the amount of the fine. Can I pay this and get them out? If so, I will get them out tomorrow. Please, dear friend, do this for me. I must get them out. Think what a thing it would be to be able to help three children. I would be delighted beyond words. If I can do this, tell the children, tell the children they are to be released tomorrow by a friend and ask them to be happy and not to tell anyone. Dear Robbie, Bosey has written to me to say that he is on the eve of a duel. They say his costume was ridiculous. I have written to beg him never to fight duels, as once one does it, one has to go on. And though it is not dangerous, like our English cricket or football, still, it is a tedious game to be always playing, and besides, to fight with a common interviewer is to fight with the dead, a thing either farcical or tragical. Robbie, I have been invited to go to Italy to the extent of 50 pounds. When that gives out, I shall have to walk home. But as I want to see you, I have consented to go, and I hope to find you in Rome in about 10 days. This time, this time I really must become a Catholic, though I fear that if I went before the Holy Father with a blossoming rod, it would turn into an umbrella or something dreadful of that kind. It is absurd to say that the age of miracles is past. It has not yet begun. And I have not yet seen Bosey for a week. I feel sure he will do nothing. Boys, brandy, and betting monopolize his soul. He is really a miser, but his method of hoarding is spending a new type. Rome is burning with heat, but I am going to the Borghese Gardens to look at daisies and drink milk. I also intend uh, to photograph Arnaldo, who has transferred to me his adoration for the successor of Peter. Uh, indeed, I fear he might have kissed me on leaving the Bronze Gateway had I not sternly repelled him. 
I have become very cruel to boys, and I no longer let them kiss me in public. By the way, can you photograph cows? Well, I did one of cows so marvelous that I destroyed it. I was afraid of being called the modern Paul Potter. Cows are very fond of being photographs, and unlike architecture, they don't move. Today, on coming out of the Vatican Gallery, Greek gods and Roman middle classes in my brain, all marble to make the contrast worse, I found that the Vatican Gardens were open to the Bohemian and the Portuguese pilgrims. I at once spoke both languages fluently, explained that my English dress was a form of penance, and entered that vast, desolate park with its somnolent avenues, its somber gardens, its sad woodlands, the peacock screamed, and I understood why tragedy do dogged the gilded feet of each pontiff. Harold Meller awaits me with his automobile. I suppose one of us will arrive in Paris. I hope it will be me. Automobiles are delightful, but of course they do break down. Like all machines, they are more willful than animals. Nervous, irritable, strange things. I am wedded, like dear St. Francis, to poverty, but in my case the marriage is not a success. I hate the bride that has been given me. The cloister or the cafe, there is my future. I tried the hearth, but it was a failure. How very unfair it is of people to be superior to me about seeing Bosey and about visiting Rome, where the museum is full of lovely Greek bronzes. The only bother is they walk about the town at night. However, one gets delicately accustomed to that, and there are compensations. Wilde liked to use the term Uranian for the word homosexual as we use it. Uh, he used it because it referred to Plato's uh, dialogues, and he found it attractive. He goes on. A patriot put in prison for loving his country loves his country. And a poet in prison for loving boys loves boys. To have altered my life would have been to admit that Uranian love is ignoble. I hold it to be noble. I wish you could have gone on forever with uh, that, uh, I don't know, that unbelievable wit and style. Anyway, somehow I uh, came up with Sir Walter Raleigh for this uh, effect, and he was in prison, but I think the only thing he wasn't in prison for was his poetry so, or any intellectual matters. However, the imprisonment of such a gorgeous and complicated soul is, is always something we people must fight against, whether, whether their poetry passes or not. Anyway, it's hard when you go back to the Elizabethan period uh, 
to fit uh, what happened to so many people, great people of the period, uh, it's very difficult to fit that in with our later, more modern tyrannies and oppressions. Uh, because at this time, the plots and the counterplots and the battles for succession to the throne, the caprices of kings and so on, uh, were uh, what life was about, especially for a courtier who wished to advance himself, which Walter Raleigh did. Anyway, he qualifies because he was imprisoned in the tower three times and finally executed. <laughs> beheaded. A like fate met his uh, rival for the affections of Queen Elizabeth, Essex. Although, as I said, the final disposition of, t of both of these extraordinary figures was not due to romance but to politics. However, Raleigh was first imprisoned in the tower when he married illegally Elizabeth Throckmorton, a lady-in-waiting to Queen Elizabeth, and that was not suitable. And he married her without permission. Essex's first visit to the tower was due to his marrying the widow of Sir Philip Sidney, and that also didn't please Queen Elizabeth. Uh, both of these figures, as I said, soldiers, courtiers indeed, explorers, and Raleigh, of course, of flower, as we call it, of English literature and English genius, beginning with his early connection with the poets of the School of the Night, uh, Marlowe and Chapman and others. His life was an extraordinary adventure, explorations to our country, America, the lost colony in Roanoke, Virginia, privateering expeditions for the crown, two voyages to South America looking for El Dorado and gold, and the last one, a political disaster which led to his death. His first imprisonment by Queen Elizabeth was, when, I've forgotten when, in the 1590s, but, and that didn't last too long, and afterwards uh, he did prosper with her and was given lands in Ireland and so on, and uh, went on the campaigns in Ireland where he met Spencer. I remember dear old um, uh, I.A. Richards, who used to come to our house, and sometimes quite without any kind of, of motive or any connection, would sometimes look up and say, oh, I don't think I can ever forgive dear Spencer for Ireland. And so, well, we have to forgive Raleigh, too, or perhaps we don't. Well, the 16-3 imprisonment by the brutish James I uh, was uh, due to the fact that he thought, among other things, that um, Raleigh was hostile to his succession. His actual execution was announced, and here is a part of the letter he sent to his wife the day or so before, on, well, actually on the eve of the expected execution. You shall receive, dear wife, my last words in these my last lines. My love I send you that you may keep it when I am dead, and my counsel that you may remember it when I am no more. First I send you all the thanks my heart can conceive or my pen express. 
For your many troubles and cares taken from me, which, though they have not taken effect as you wished, yet my debt is is to you nevertheless, but pay it I never shall in this world. Secondly, I beseech you for the love you bore me living, that you do not hide yourself many days, but by travel seek to help your miserable fortunes and the rights of your poor child. Your mourning cannot avail me that I am but dust. To what friend to direct thee I know not, for all mine have left me in the true time of trial. And I plainly perceive that my death was determined from the first day. Then he speaks of monies he owes and debts and uh, business affairs and writes at the end, written with a dying hand of sometime thy husband, but now, alas, overthrown. This sentence was reprieved, and Raleigh remained off and on in the tower between 1603 and 1616 at that time writing all sorts of things, many lost, but writing his history of the world and other ambitious and extraordinary projects. In 1616, he was sent out to go on a second expedition to South America, again to find gold and El Dorado. It was a failure insofar as finding gold and a worse failure in that there had been a kind of pact with the Spanish that uh, somehow you weren't in any way to impinge upon their territory. And Raleigh's group captured a town and uh, so on, and the Spanish insisted that he be punished. And there were other diplomatic and foreign policy associations here with France and so on, and many testimonies in the trial. In any case, the execution was carried out in October 1618. Sir Francis Bacon enters into this execution as he did, alas, in the execution of Essex, in the execution of Essex practically signing the death warrant. He advised um, uh, James I about uh, the troubles with Raleigh, saying sometimes things like, uh, or writing to the king, perhaps he was only passively involved in France. But then uh, poor Francis Bacon fell himself, stripped of his powers and put out of Parliament and spent his last years writing, all to the good. Uh, the month before the execution, a short note from Raleigh to his wife, I am sick and weak. This honest gentleman, Mr. Edward Wilson, is my keeper and takes much pain with me. My swollen side keeps me in perpetual pain and unrest. God comfort us. Uh, he wrote a poem, uh, The Passionate Man's Pilgrimage, supposed writ written by one at the point of death. I'm not sure whether this was his last execution or the 1603, but here is a little bit of the end. Uh, of course, it has pleased to heaven and a good deal of bitterness about the corruption of the world. The end goes... From thence to heaven's bribeless hall, this is a political poem. From thence to heaven's bribeless hall, where no corrupted voices brawl, no conscience molten into gold, nor forged accusers bought and sold, no cause deferred, nor vain spent journey. For there Christ is the king's attorney, and he hath angels but no fees. Uh, so... 
uh, Raleigh, as I read it, apparently, <coughs> he grew, I think, quite used to the idea of execution, <coughs> having been imprisoned so many times. <coughs> and though he was thought arrogant and hot-tempered and ambitious, in a worldly sense, he faced his, the end of his life with such tremendous courage that it would, can only be thought of as a sort of defiance. <coughs> he makes a long speech to the crowd protesting his innocence on all the points. It's like a dossier of all the points of, I didn't do this with Mr. Stuckley. I never had any practice with the French king or his ambassador. I never did speak any disloyal words of my king. If I did, Lord, block me out of this book of life. The execution itself stayed in the minds of all who witnessed it, and many of the most prominent people of the day were there. So if Raleigh was a courtier and a worldly man and something of a trimmer, also uh, Hume in his history of the world, I mean history of England, gives Raleigh what you might call a very bad press, but um, not all historians feel that way. Still, although seeking exoneration to the last, he died with really brilliant flair, you might say. He said to the executioner, show me the ax. This gives me no fear. It is sharp and fair medicine to cure me of all my diseases. On the morning of, of the execution, his old servant told him that he had not combed his hair and put on this sort of plaster that they put on it. And Raleigh answered, let them comb it that are to have it. Uh, dost thou know of any plaster that will set a man's head on again once it is off? Uh, so when the head fell, it was shown to the people, and someone in the crowd was heard to say, we have not another such head to be cut off. It was put in a red bag and taken to Lady Raleigh, who had it embalmed and kept it by her all her life. I think all, all us writers are, are frustrated performers, as you've already seen by, the, by, by Richard Howard and Elizabeth Hardwick. Richard Howard gave us a sample of what could very well be a sort of Broadway show, An Evening with Oscar Wilde, like, and uh, Elizabeth Hardwick gave us a, an oral version of a little essay by Lytton Strachey. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read from... I'm not going to try to characterize Marina Svetayeva, uh, perhaps because it, I, I, I feel so, uh, so much reverence uh, for her um, that I would prefer to use the time I have just to, to uh, transmit as best I can uh, some of her words. Uh, the excruciating life that she led is uh, well documented, although there's yet to be a, 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 a full biography. Uh, she left the uh, Soviet Union in the early 20s, uh, in, went into exile with uh, many other uh, 
very important writers of her generation and a preceding generation, such as uh, Andre Belli. Uh, she went first not, not to Berlin, as a great many of the uh, exiles of that generation went, but rather to Prague. And shortly after that, uh, after about two or three years in Prague, where she had the uh, love affair that is um, the background of her two long poems, the poem of the mountain and the poem of the end, she moved with her two children. One of her children had already died of uh, starvation in 1919 in the Soviet Union. There were two children left. Uh, to Paris, where she led, led a life of extraordinary uh, poverty, uh, uh, exile, uh, deprivation, exile from the emigre community uh, in Paris. She was uh, considered a white uh, by the uh, pro-Soviet uh, 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 people living abroad, and she was considered a red, a sympathizer with the Bolshevik government uh, by the uh, uh, white exiles uh, who controlled the literary magazines uh, in Berlin and Paris where, where the exiles published, where, for instance, Vladimir Nabokov began his career first in Berlin and then in Paris publishing in the exile magazines. Uh, she uh, was certainly uh, uh, um, um, uh, beyond politics. Uh, she had a, a very extraordinary personal relations with a great many poets by letter. Uh, uh, Mayakovsky, Pasternak, uh, Rilke. Next year, a, a, a three-part, a three-way correspondence be among her, uh, uh, Svetayeva, Rilke, and Pasternak will be published. It's already appeared in French. I've read it in French and uh, will now appear in English. What I'm going to read from today is uh, an essay that is fragments of an essay, I should say, that Svetayeva wrote in 1932. That is to say, she'd already been in Paris since 25. She was to remain in Paris in exile with her two children until the end of the 30s. In 1939, she did return, against everyone's advice, to the Soviet Union, and she committed suicide, sent into internal exile in the Soviet Union, committed suicide in August uh, 1941. This essay, Art in the Light of Conscience, uh, we know it as an essay, is in fact about half of a, uh, a draft which was part of a book that she was writing to be called Art in the Light of Conscience. Uh, when it was submitted to one of the exile magazines, and she had a great deal of difficulty getting her poetry published and, did, and wrote more and more prose in the 30s, uh, the uh, editor cut it in half, and the full manuscript, as far as we know, is lost. So, although we can be pretty sure that it was written in her characteristic fragment form, it's probably even more fragmentary because of uh, editor's cuts. These are some passages from uh, Art and the Light of Conscience, Marina Svetaeva, 1932. What does art teach? Goodness? No. Common sense? No. It cannot even teach itself, for it is given. There is no thing which is not taught by art. There is no thing directly the reverse of that which is not taught by art. And no thing is the only thing which is taught by art. All the lessons which we derive from art, we put into it. A series of answers to which there are no questions. All art is the sole givenness of the answer. All our art is in being able, managing in time, to oppose to each answer before it evaporates. 
our question. This being outgalloped by answers is what inspiration is, and how often a blank page. One reads Werther and shoots himself. Another reads Werther and, because Werther shoots himself, decides to live. One has acted like Werther, the other like Goethe. A lesson in self-destruction, a lesson in self-defense, both. Goethe, by some law of that hour of his life, needed to shoot Werther. And the suicidal demon of the generation needed to be incarnated precisely through Goethe's hand, a twice-fated necessity, and as such, devoid of responsibility and very fraught with consequences. Is Goethe guilty of all the consequent deaths? He himself, in his profound and splendid old age, replied, no, otherwise we wouldn't dare say a word, for who can calculate the effect of any one word. I too shall reply for Goethe, no. He had no evil will, he had no will at all, except the creative one. Writing his Werther, he not only forgot all the others, that is, their possible calamities, but forgot himself too, his own calamity. Forgetfulness, that is forgetfulness of everything which is not the work, that is the very basis of creation. Would Goethe have written Werther a second time after everything that had happened if improbably he had again just as desperate a need to? And would he then have been indictable? Would Goethe have written knowingly? He would have written it a thousand times if he had needed to. But he would not have written a single line of the first one if the pressure had been the tiniest bit lighter. And would he have been indictable? As a man, yes. As an artist, no. Moreover, as an artist, Goethe would have been both indictable and condemned if he had immolated Werther within himself in order to preserve human lives, to fulfill the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Here, the law of art is the direct reverse of the moral law. An artist is guilty only in two cases. That of the refusal, mentioned already, to create a work of art for whomever's sake, and that of the creation of an inartistic work. Sounds like Oscar Wilde. <laughs> here his lesser responsibility ends and here begins his boundless responsibility as a human being. In some cases, artistic creation is a sort of atrophy of conscience. More than that, a necessary atrophy of conscience. The moral flaw without which art can never exist. In order to be good and not lead into temptation the little ones of this world, art would have to renounce a good half of itself. The only way for art to be wittingly good is not to be. Tolstoy's crusade. An exception in favor of genius. Our whole relation to art is an exception in favor of genius. Art itself is that genius in favor of which we are accepted, we are exempted from the moral law. What is our whole attitude to art if not this? Conquerors are not to be judged. And what else is art but a foreknown conqueror, seducer of our conscience above all? In Tolstoy's crusade against art, what is important is Tolstoy, the artist. We forgive the artist, the shoemaker. War and peace cannot be eradicated from our attitude to him, ineradicable, unalterable. 
We consecrate the shoemaker through the artist. In Tolstoy's crusade against art, we are once again seduced by art. All this is not a reproach to Tolstoy, but a reproach to us, the slaves of art. Tolstoy would have given his soul to make people listen, not to Tolstoy, but the truth. And I'll read one other short section. The condition of creation is the condition of being overcome by a spell. Until you begin, it is a state of being obsessed. Until you finish, a state of being possessed. Something, someone, lodges in you. Your hand is the fulfiller, not of you, but of him. Who is he? That which through you wants to be. Things always chose me by the mark of my strength, and often I wrote them almost against my will. All of my Russian works are like this. Certain things of Russia wanted to be spoken. They chose me, and they persuaded, seduced me. By what? By my own strength. Only you. Yes, only I. And having given in, sometimes seeingly, sometimes blindly, I obeyed, sought out with my ear some prescribed oral lesson. The condition of creation is a condition of dreaming, when suddenly, obeying an unknown necessity, you set fire to your house or push your friend down from a mountaintop. Is it your act? Clearly it is yours. It is you, after all, that is sleeping, dreaming, yours in complete freedom, the act of yourself without conscience, of yourself as nature. What doesn't accept, rejects, even ejects, is the human being, will, reason, conscience. In this realm, the poet can have only one prayer, not to understand the unacceptable. Let me not understand that I be not seduced. The sole prayer of the poet is not to hear the voices. Let me not hear that I may not answer. For to hear is for the poet to answer. And to answer is to affirm, even if by the passionateness of his denial. The only prayer of the poet is a prayer for deafness. Or else he has the utterly difficult choice of what to hear according to its quality. That is, the forcible stopping of his ears to a series of calls, invariably the strongest ones. Innate selection, that is, the hearing only of what is important, is a blessing given to no one, almost no one. When at the age of 13, I asked an old revolutionary is it possible to be a poet and also in the party? He replied without a moment's thought, no. Thus, I too shall answer, no. And one last passage. This is a part, part about Mayakovsky. Of course, this was written in 32. Mayakovsky killed himself in in 1930, and the part I'm reading, which is the end of these fragments that we have of, of this essay, uh, follows a comparison of, of Mayakovsky and Pushkin. No imperial censor dealt with Pushkin as Vladimir Mayakovsky dealt with himself. If there is in that life a suicide, then there is not one but two, and both are non-suicides, for the first is an, is an act of valor, the second a celebration. The overcoming of nature, 
and the glorifying of nature. He lived a human being, and he died a poet. To be a human being is more important because more needed. The doctor and the priest are more needed than the poet because they are at the deathbed, while we are not. Doctor and priest are humanly more important. All the rest are socially more important. Whether the social is itself important is another question, which I shall have the right to answer only from an island. Except for parasites in all their various forms, everyone is more important than we are. And knowing this, having put my signature to this while of sound mind and in full possession of my faculties, I assert, no less in possession of my faculties and of sound mind, that I would not exchange my work for any other. Knowing the greater, I do the lesser. That is why there is no forgiveness for me. Only such as I will be held responsible at the judgment day of conscience. But if there is a judgment day of the word, at that I am innocent. It's hard to follow those passages, those eloquent and wise passages, but I do have some poems here of passionate longing. I have chosen to read Hebrew poems of the 11th and 12th centuries because the poets write of strangeness and strange lands with the same, with, with a plangent yearning reminiscent of the biblical Psalms, which to me seem archetypal poems of exile. First, Yehuda Halevi, who was born before 1075 and died after 1141, lived in Muslim Spain and in Christian Spain, where he practiced medicine, apparently in service to the king, until the murder of his benefactor, he wished to emigrate to the Holy Land of Zion, but did not actually make that arduous voyage until September 1140, six months before his death. Until then, he wrote Songs of Zion, his most famous works, which, like the biblical Psalms, spoke of the perilous sea voyage of his imagination. Ode to Zion, O Zion, will you not ask how your captives are, the exiles who seek your welfare, who are the remnant of your flocks, from west and east, north and south, from every side, except the greetings of those near and far, and the blessings of this captive of desire, who sheds his tears like the dew of Hermon, and longs to have them fall upon your hills. I am like a jackal when I weep for your affliction, but when I dream of your exile's return, 
I am a lute for your songs. If only I could roam through those places where God was revealed to your heralds, who will give me wings so that I may wander far away? I would carry the pieces of my broken heart over your rugged mountains. I would bow down, my face on your ground. I would love your stones. Your dust would move me to pity. Happy is he who waits and lives to see your light rising, your dawn breaking forth over him. He shall see your people prospering. He shall rejoice in your joy when you regain the days of your youth. The next poem is called The Poet Imagines His Voyage. Let not your heart tremble in the heart of the sea when you see mountains trembling and heaving and sailors' hands as limp as rags and soothsayers struck dumb. When they set their course, they were full of joy, but now they are beaten back in shame. The whole ocean is yours to escape in, but your only refuge is the snare of the deep. The sails quiver and quake, the beams creak and shudder. The hand of the wind toys with the waves, like reapers at the threshing. Now it flattens them out, now it stacks them up. When the waves gather strength, they are lions. When they weaken, they are snakes who then pursue the lions, like vipers that cannot be charmed. Suddenly the waves calm down and are like flocks spread out over the fields. And the night, once the sun has gone down the stairway of the heavenly hosts, who are commanded by the moon, is like a violet robe spangled with crystal. And in the heart of the sea, the stars cast a light in their image and likeness that glows like fires. Now the sea and the sky are pure, glittering ornaments upon the night. The sea is the color of the sky. They are two seas bound together. And between these two, my heart is a third sea, as the new waves of my praise surge on high. <coughs> Haya Gaon, a scholar in Babylonian, in Babylonia, who lived, who died in 1038, writes, of the bitterness of exile from the Holy Land. Sweet death. Yes, the bitterness of death is past, and death is far sweeter than honey, but not for all nations, not for all races. There is only one people to whom death is pleasant, the people of God, the offspring of the patriarchs who wait for death, but it does not come. Not even this wish is granted them. They have been allotted a long life so that no sorrow shall escape them. This is the people that is as though it had never been. Every mouth devoured it. It was scattered to the corners of the earth, plundered by all nations. Make haste, go up to my father and say to him, your son is about to die, will you not come to visit him? Speak to the earth and it will tell you how he has wandered to his limits. Its dust will inform you how it was kneaded with his blood. Go to the wilderness and see how it was drenched with his tears. The blood of your murdered people has made the desert bring forth grain. 
Get up, call on your God, gather all your dead and say to him, O Lord, you are compassionate and gracious. After all this, would you hold back? You have ravaged them, you have ridiculed them, you have paid them no heed. You have given them up to be butchered like sheep, until now you have shown them no pity. Is it so hard for you to have mercy even on the widowed, uh, widowed city which was once so full of people? Will you refuse to comfort her with your love? These translations were literal translations uh, in prose by T. Carmi. I'm going to read now from Dante's Inferno. Dante's long exile from Florence, which inspires the theme of exile throughout the Divine Comedy, began two years after his party drove a rival faction from Florence, and then the rival faction returned and expelled his party, among them Dante, for he had been a member of the city council, the priorate, that issued a decree banishing the leaders of both sides. I'm reading from Canto 26 of the Inferno, translation by Lawrence Binion. Rejoice, Florence, because thy fame has flown over earth and sea, winging the heavenly vault, and even though hell's regions, sorry, and even through hell's regions is it known. Among the thieves I found five of that fault thy citizens, whence shame comes to my cheek, nor thou thine honor greatly dost exalt. But if the truth and dream of morning speak, Thou shalt in short time feel what upon thee the others, and even Prato, thirst to wreak. If it were now, not too soon would it be. Since come it must, I would that come it were, for with each year heavier it is for me.